0: If those words sounded familiar there in that last song, go in your Bibles this afternoon and read Psalm chapter 2, and you will find that as the nations rage, the king sits on his throne, uh, and the king is coming back. Before our study this morning, I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, Uh, and while you're turning there, um, it's been a while since we've been in this gospel, and so I want to recap just a little to bring you up to speed as kind of a reminder of where we've been. Uh, and if you're new here, you're, you've shown up during the summer, this will kind of bring you up to speed with where we were when I left uh, a few months ago. The physician Luke is writing here an account of the person of Jesus, and he's writing based on his own Interviews with eyewitnesses and his own close relationships uh, with Jesus' disciples. And so beginning with Jesus' miraculous birth, and he also includes John the Baptist's miraculous birth, Luke is laying out for us a narrative that includes all of Jesus' early life, his birth, his genealogy and childhood. But then the bulk of his letter, his gospel, is the three-year ministry beginning in chapter 4 and then extending as we saw through chapter 5 and it'll go through the rest of his book. And what we've discovered so far is that Jesus has incredible and divine power to heal people. He has power over demons. He has supernatural power. And he's begun to call his first disciples. He called Peter, called James and John, Uh, Later, he called Levi, who we now also known uh, in the scriptures as Matthew. Well, it's not long after Jesus begins his earthly ministry that opposition begins to pop up. And that should be expected because Jesus has come to interpret the law uh, correctly, to fulfill the law, and to establish himself as the very son of God. And all three of those, but in particular that last one, the establishment of himself as the son of God, does not sit well with the powers at be, with the religious establishment of that day. And so these folks have began to spy him out a little bit. Check out who this guy is, especially as Jesus begins to gain notoriety. They start watching closer and closer for ways to discredit him. They believe that Jesus is a heretic. They, they think that he's claiming a divine authority that is not his to claim. And he also is a threat to their earthly power and influence that they have over the Jewish people. Right in the beginning of chapter 5, if you just glance up slightly, you'll start to see this group of people show up that are called the Pharisees. Pharisees. That word Pharisee simply means the separated ones. They have separated themselves from the ordinary, average, religious Jew by becoming hyper-vigilant law-keepers. They're separate from the normal Joe. They're the the good guys. And and not only did they try to fulfill the law with all of their might, they became the self-appointed religion police for everybody else. And so if somebody got outside of their determination of what was right and wrong, they were very quick to condemn, very quick to marginalize, and they were unashamed To shun what they called lawbreakers. Now, if you were with us back as we were going through chapters four and chapter five, we've we've started to watch the Pharisees go down this road with Jesus when he healed the paralytic. If you remember that story, and he claimed the divine right to forgive sin. Well, that didn't that didn't go over very well with them. Uh, And and then later they got all up in arms when Jesus picked Levi, a tax collector, to be his disciple. And then he actually went and hung out with Levi's crummy friends. That didn't look good in their eyes. And then at the end of chapter 5, they called into question the disciples' practice, or lack thereof, of fasting. And every time they come to Jesus... They get really frustrated with his reply because they're never able to to pin him down. every every time they come at him, he has a way of going around the point that they're trying to make, and he he tells them truth again. they can't they can't find a way to break this guy, which leads us then now this morning to the fourth attack that they're making against Jesus. So follow along as I read. Luke chapter 6 verses 1 to 5 Here's what Luke records records for us On a Sabbath while he that's Jesus was going through the grain fields his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain rubbing them in their hands But some of the Pharisees said why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. To this Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus these are your words recorded here and this is the point you were trying to make both to the disciples and the Pharisees present on this day but it's also the same truth and instruction that you want us to know and to apply in our lives so help me to fade away and for you to come forward and shine in all your glory as we learn about you this morning from this text in Jesus name I pray Amen. Well, I've told uh, this story often from my own life, but it strikes me as such a vivid illustration of what's happening uh, in this text. From when I was born until about the age of eight, my parents attended Bethel Mennonite Church, ironically, Bethel Mennonite Church in Odin, Indiana, It's a rural kind of a country church and at the time it had wooden pews and it had one of those floors, stadium sort of floors that slanted downward uh, toward the stage. And right above the pulpit on the bulkhead was this giant wooden sign and on that sign were just three words, reverence my sanctuary. Well, as a kid, I had no idea what those big words meant, uh, no meaning. So, uh, one morning when the service, the worship service had started, I leaned over to my mom and I said, "What does that mean?" Well, annoyed with my interruption, and, and, and at that particular moment unwilling to unpack a theological overview of what respect and worship look like in the house of God. She gave me an irritated look and she said, it means don't chew gum in church. (laughs) Wow. Ain't nobody bringing their hubba bubba in here, right? Right? Can you imagine if somebody pulled out like the big league chew, you know, like start stuffing that in right in the middle of this sermon? This church takes seriously the law of gum chewing. It's right there for everybody to see. There's no wonder then there was so much gum stuck under the pews, right? When I was a kid, I would lay under the pew and I would pick it off and I would eat it. <laughs> Probably why I've got this nervous tick in my, <laughs> in my neck. Some bacteria. Well, now obviously my mom knew that that sign meant much more than that. But in my eight year old mind, that was the law. And as long as I didn't chew gum in church, I was fulfilling the demands of reverence my sanctuary. You see how that worked? The Pharisees did something similar. Notice in verse 1 of our text that Luke very intentionally points out that this incident occurs on a Sabbath. What is a Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath has few different meanings in Scripture. Most often, when you come across it in Scriptures, it means the seventh day. And in the law of Moses, in the Ten Commandments, we read this in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That command is repeated several times actually throughout the law, multiple times in the book of Exodus. You can find that command again in the book of Numbers. You can find it again in the book of Leviticus over and over. The command was, Remember the Sabbath day. You shall not do any work. Now, hear me on this because this is important. The Sabbath was a gift of mercy To God's people. It was a day of rest. From the hard work of the week. And it was a day given. To God's people. So that they could focus their thoughts. And their worship toward God. The intent of the Sabbath. Was to be an intentional break. From the regular pace of life. So you had time to rest. And you had time to think. Specifically. About God. But much like I asked my mom to elaborate on the meaning of that sign, someone came along and asked the inevitable question, if we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, what constitutes work? Great question but incredibly difficult to to define with precision. But that didn't stop the legalists from trying. Oh, they tried. And by the time you reach Jesus' day, and by the time this account is recorded for us, the Pharisees had accumulated a staggering volume of 39 different categories of activities that would constitute forbidden work. And under each of those 39 categories were subcategories. And under those were sub-subcategories of all the things that you could not do because that meant you were working on the Sabbath day. The list goes on and on and on. Let me give you just a peek into what was happening. What is work? That's the question. What is work? Well... One answer is to carry a burden. If you carry a burden, you're working. Well, of course, if you say that, then the next question has to be, well, what is a burden, right? I can't carry a burden. What's a burden? So the scribal law says a burden is, and I quote, food equal in weight to a dried fig. That's a burden. A burden is enough wine for mixing in a goblet. A burden is enough milk for one swallow. Enough honey to put on a womb. Oil enough to anoint a member of your body. Water enough to moisten an eye salve. That's a burden. Paper enough to write a notice upon ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, that would be a burden, uh, read enough to make a pen, and it goes on and on and on. You could eat olives, but you could not sort out the bad ones because that would be gathering. Gathering is work. You can write one, Alphabetic letter, but not two, because then you would be constructing a letter and construction is work. You can erase one alphabetical letter, but you cannot erase two because that is cleaning. Cleaning is work. If you threw an object in the air and you caught it with the other hand, that is a sin because you are transferring a burden. If you threw it up in a hand, caught it in the same hand, well, no, that's okay. You just can't transfer it. If you put out your hand for food and the Sabbath began before you pulled that hand back, you had to drop the food because you could not carry that burden back with you. A tailor could not carry his needle. A scribe could not carry his pen. And a pupil could not carry his books. Why not? Well, because you might accidentally pull that out and unconsciously begin to do your normal activities of work. No clothing could be examined, lest somehow you might find a piece of lice and brush it off. Now you're guilty of combing the wool. Nothing could be dyed and nothing could be colored on the Sabbath. By the way, that one is still in dispute today. And in fact, the most uh, latest dispute is whether or not you can have those little toilet bow deodorizers in use on the Sabbath. Because when the water comes over this, it colors the toilet water blue. Nothing could be sold. Nothing could be bought. Nothing could be washed. No fire could be lit. No fire could be extinguished. Cold water could be poured on warm, but warm water cannot be poured on cold because you're cooking now. You could not bathe on the Sabbath because water might fall off of you under the floor, and certainly that would count as washing the floor. Chairs should not be moved lest they make a rut in the floor. A radish should never be left in the salt because it would cause it to pickle, and now you're cooking On the Sabbath, you can walk 1,999 steps, but if you walk 2,000, you're sinning. If a building fell on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to discover if any victims were dead or alive. If alive, they could be rescued and their wounds could be treated only if they were life-threatening. But if the rubble was removed and they were dead, the corpses must be left until the Sabbath day ended. Listen, when you go down this road of legalism, it ends in one place. Moral absurdity. When you go down this road, it ends in one place. Moral absurdity. And by the time Luke records this account for us with Jesus' interactions here with the Pharisees on the Sabbath day, far from its intended purpose of providing rest, rest and being a blessing to God's people, the Sabbath day had become the most burdensome day of the week. The constant fear of Violating one of these extra biblical, extra biblical laws was not only physically grueling to prepare for as you headed into the Sabbath day, but mentally and emotionally exhausting to experience. There was almost a relief when the Sabbath day was over. Because at least the perpetual scrutiny took a reprieve. Now knowing all of that, In the context, go back with me and look again at verse 1 and feel then the immediate horror and rage that sets in among the watching Pharisees. Look at verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going to the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. They plucked the grain They rubbed it in their hands and they ate it. What are they doing, according to the Pharisee? Well, they are harvesting, they are threshing, and they are preparing food. Three violations of the law forbidden on the Sabbath day. Now, if you are a student of scripture, you know that plucking grain by hand in a neighbor's field, it was permitted uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse twenty nine, uh, 25, but it was not allowed by the Pharisees on the Sabbath day. This was the big beef. It's the Sabbath day. These guys have violated man-made regulations that defined work on the day when no work was to be done. And so these Pharisees approach the disciples and they approach Jesus with their accusation. But I want you to notice something. Even though they come up and they, they approach everybody, notice who gives the answer back to them. It's Jesus. Jesus answers them. And beloved, just know this. Know that Jesus will always come to your defense and to the defense of those who love him, who act with a clean conscience in an effort to obey him. Always. Jesus will always come to your defense. If you're acting with a clean conscience and you're trying to obey him, this is Jesus. He comes up and he confronts the Pharisees. And I just love the the wit of Jesus. I would have loved to have been there. Honestly, Jesus, I think we see him as this timid, shy kind of guy. When you read some of what he says and does, he had a lot of wit and power and courage. And notice the wit here. When he starts off his answer to these Pharisees, he says, have you not read... Well, that is actually a withering insult to the very people who have spent their lives reading God's word. Have you not read? What do you mean I haven't read? I I read God's word every day, is what they're saying. I've studied God's word every day. I am an expert in God's word. You have the audacity to ask me if I've read. Have you read? And without even stopping to catch his breath, Jesus goes on in verses 3 and 4, and he says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God, and he took, and he ate the bread of presence. That's not lawful. Only the priests are allowed to eat that, but he did it, and he gave it to those who were with him. Have you not read that? Now keep your finger here in Luke 6, and turn with me back to 1 Samuel 21. This is where we read this account of what David did. David was on the run from King Saul when this event took place in, in David's life. Uh, David eventually became king and became the most renowned king uh, in Israel. But at this time, he wasn't yet king. He was running from Saul. Uh, but God spared his life and, and he eventually then becomes the beloved uh, king after Saul's death. But follow along as I read in this passage, 1 Samuel chapter 21, starting at verse 1. You see what Jesus is referring to. David came to, to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king, that's uh, Saul, has charged me with a matter and said to me, "Let let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, David asks this priest, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. David's really, really hungry. The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there except for the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken. What is this? What's going on here? Well, in the Levitical law, there was bread called the bread of presence. Sometimes it was called the show bread. It was commanded to be baked every week and every week they would bake these 12 large loaves and they would stack them in two piles. So there were six in in each pile and they would place them on this table of gold in the holy place of the sanctuary or of the temple. Those 12 loaves represented God's provision for the 12 tribes of Israel. And we can infer from the, the law that their intent was so that they would recognize that God is man's provider and sustainer and that man lives constantly in the presence of God. That's why it's called the uh, the bread of presence. The Israelites were, so to say, guests at this table. Uh, They were consecrated to God and by means of offering these loaves gratefully acknowledge their indebtedness to God. Every week, 12 new loaves of bread would be baked and the 12 from the previous week would be given to Aaron and to the priests for their food. Interesting side note, Aaron and his priests, if you think about it, always ate week old bread because the new stuff went on the table. But that bread that was taken off of the table was only to be used by the priest. Well, when David shows up in this 1 Samuel 21 passage, he's hungry. And when he comes here, the priest says, well, the only bread that I have is the bread of presence. Now, what did the priest do? Did he yank it back and say, "Ah, no, 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 no. You can't have that bread. That's special bread. Shoo, shoo on your way, go find something somewhere else. Is that what he did? No. He said, here's the bread. That was an unlawful thing for the priest to do. But he did it because human need must never be subjected to barren legalism. Human need must never be subjected to barren legalism. Now, jump back to our Luke passage. Go back to Luke chapter 6. In reminding the Pharisees of this story, while they are accusing Jesus, remember now, of breaking the law, what is Jesus' point? Why did he ask them to consider the acts of David on that particular day? The point is this. David had a right to ignore a divinely ordained ceremonial provision when necessity demanded it. Remember, what David did violated the actual law. But the implication that Jesus is making here is that he had the authority to do it given the circumstances. And so if David had the right to d- ignore a direct Ceremonial provision of the law, then would not David's exalted offspring, namely Jesus himself, the appointed one, the Messiah, the very son of God, in a far more prominent sense, have the right under similar conditions of need to set aside a totally unwarranted man-made Sabbath regulation. David, out of need, set aside the actual law. He had the authority to do it. Jesus said, if he can do that, surely I can come along and set aside this silly Sabbath rule that you've made because we need the food. We're hungry. Did Jesus have the authority to do that? Absolutely yes. And I love the comment that Mark's gospel records right here in Mark chapter 2. Go back and read it uh, this afternoon. It says, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Do not get that order reversed. Man was made first. And as an expression of mercy and goodness to man, God gave him a Sabbath rest. God did not create the Sabbath first and then tell man to conform to its preeminence. Don't get that reversed. You'll make a big mess. And then after he says that, Jesus lands this final blow. Look at it in verse five. He says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. That statement has massive messianic implications. Remember, the Sabbath was a divinely, uh, was divinely instituted by God himself. So if Jesus here using the his favorite description of himself, the Son of Man. If Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, what is he claiming? I am God. Pfft. Mic drop. God instituted the Sabbath. So for Jesus to say, I am Lord. Of the Sabbath, he's saying to these Pharisees, You're looking at God. I am God. The Pharisees did not miss that meaning. Of that you can be absolutely sure. And even though they might leave the scene, this claim of divine personhood never leaves their mind. In fact, it is the claim for which one day they will crucify him. So what can we take away from this? What do we learn from this? I think there's at least two major takeaways from this passage first there may be some in this room who very much resemble the Pharisees there may be some in this room that have a particular definition of what could and should happen on a particular day of the week Uh, And some argue if that remains on Saturday, that was the Sabbath of the Jews, or if that transferred to Sunday because of the resurrection of our Lord. But regardless, uh, some people have a list of do's and don'ts for a day of the week. And when they see others violate their prescribed rules for the Sabbath, they're very quick to jump to judgment. Well, let me just remind you what Paul wrote in Romans 14. He says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, Well, the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. I would just say that Christian liberty allows for some diversity here. Don't fall into the trap of legalism, especially when God gave the Sabbath for your rest and for your enjoyment. Don't make it a burden on you or others. That's the first thing. Second takeaway, and I think far more important takeaway The Sabbath is actually meant to point us forward to something far greater. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or in with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. There it is. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to who? Christ. Those things, including the Sabbath, are a shadow. The substance belongs to Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus alluded to this in Matthew chapter 11 when he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He is not talking about someone who has just worked a 70 hour week and is just physically exhausted and just wants to lay on the couch with remote control. That's not what he's talking about when he says weary and heavy laden. What he, who he's talking to is he's talking to the person who has labored under the weight of the law and under the weight of sin and they're just trying their best. They're just trying hard to live up to the standard of God and they just keep falling short over and over and over again. And Jesus says, come and I will give you rest. For your soul. If I could go back to that. Eight year old boy. Reading that sign. Reverence my sanctuary. I would tell that boy. God not only wants you to reverence his sanctuary. He owns the sanctuary. This is all his. And that God. Who wants you to honor the sanctuary. He loves you very much and you no longer need to struggle with your own efforts to try to please this God, what do you need to do instead? You need to trust in this Jesus of Luke 6, the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what you need to do because Jesus came into this world to give you an eternal rest, an eternal Sabbath a greater Sabbath. For every person who will seek forgiveness of their sin, what they will find is freedom from the crushing legalistic burden and guilt of having to try to earn the favor of God. The price has already been paid. Jesus went to a cross and there on the cross he died for every sin that you've ever committed and every sin that you ever will commit. And there on the cross, he took the ferocious, righteous judgment of God in your place. If you and I had to face even a millisecond of God's wrath, we would never survive. We would never make it. But Jesus took the full brunt of it. And the father turned his face away and Jesus suffered, not only physically, but spiritually for us. And he died. But three days later, he rose again and he proved his payment was enough to satisfy the justice of God. And so today, God holds out this gift to you. And he says, if you will repent of your sin." And if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I will give you an eternal Sabbath. I will give you rest, true rest. Rest knowing that your sins have been removed and there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8. So to the person who might be in this room who has never believed in Jesus Christ, I say to you, come. The Savior is willing to take you. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And to the one who might be sitting here in this room this morning saying, Sean, I love the Lord. I, I, I believe in the Lord. And yet I'm still battling sin. I want to tell you something. I know. Join the club. To the one who's sitting there who's saying, but I blew it yesterday. In fact, if, you, if I was honest, I, I blew it on the way to church this morning. I am constantly living under the guilt and the shame of my unwanted sin. I know. I, I know. But listen to me. You can have genuine rest Because it is not based on what you have done or not done that brings you into favor with God. It is what Christ has done for you. Your salvation is grounded in him. Your role is to confess and repent and keep on believing. Remind yourself of the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. And then look again into the face of the Lord of Sabbath and say to Jesus, thank you. Why should I gain from your reward? You are the one that died. Why why should I gain from that? I'm sinful. I can't give an answer. But I know with all All my heart, your wounds have paid my ransom. Jesus says, enter into the rest of my Sabbath. Stand with me. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing that song together. And when we get to those lines, I just want you, like Don said, use your outside voice. (laughs) Jesus, I'm resting in you. Your wounds paid my ransom. I can find true joy. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you are Lord of the Sabbath. You created it for our blessing, for our rest. You never meant or intended for it to be this burdensome, dreary, dark, cloud over our heads but you intended it so that we could have a break from the pace of our life and reflect on you again so thankful Jesus that you had the authority to look the Pharisees in the eye and say I am God and this Sabbath that you you Pharisees are making such a mess of this actually is pointing to something much greater than a day of the week it's pointing to what I'm going to accomplish on the cross And so I pray for us here this morning who still struggle with sin. We still struggle with unwanted temptation and we give in to it and we beat ourselves up and we try and we think that you're mad at us again and how can you love us? And Father, help us to come back to the beauty in the gospel that says our security in you is grounded in the work of Christ. And as we confess our sins to you, You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to rest in the beauty of knowing that we don't have to work and claw our way to you, but you came to us and you did what we could never do on our own. Thank you for the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.